Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Natalie Robinson. Natalie is a marine physicist with NEWA, New Zealand's National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. Natalie holds a PhD in marine physics and specialises in polar oceanography, with most of her work looking at Antarctica. Her work looks at broader issues like how does the polar ice vary from year to year to the nitty-gritty of what's happening when a specific ice shelf is melting. Natalie's presently focused on supercooled ocean water, water that's colder than its own freezing temperature, yet remains liquid, and so is the coldest naturally occurring water on the planet. Natalie's also passionate about making science accessible to everyone and has participated in numerous outreach and engagement opportunities. And I actually came across Natalie and her work a few months ago when wandering through the International Antarctic Centre in Christchurch with my kids and watching this incredible video called The Climate Canary, where Natalie was featured there and our whole family was fascinated to watch her pulling up these buckets of supercooled water filled with ice crystals. I'm really looking forward to hearing a bit more about her career today. Hello, Natalie, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, and thank you for having me. You're welcome. So I'd love to start a little way back, if we may, in terms of your career. And and when you were a child or even a teenager, what were you thinking about? What were you even dreaming about as a career? I'm not sure that I can really remember specific career ideas, but I know I was a pretty curious kid and I don't think I've ever really been satisfied with taking other people's answers for things. So I guess science and finding things out for yourself seems like some sort of natural progression from there. Fascinating. And what was it then about science in particular that really inspired you or really piqued your interest? Well, I think really the choice came towards the end of high school and thinking about going to university next. But I was fortunate to have a particular physics teacher who made physics possible for everybody. I mean, I was enthusiastic and pleased to to get into stuff like that. But that one teacher actually made quite a bit of difference, I would say. And it's interesting, isn't it, how sometimes those one or two teachers in our lives actually can influence the direction of our careers almost in terms of the the things that you might choose to go on and do. And then what then led you into, as you said, you studied physics, did your PhD in marine physics. What led you then into getting particularly into, into polar oceanography? Oh, well, actually, that happened at the end of my undergraduate degree. So I had a degree in physics and the... The last year of that was specialising in quantum mechanics and more abstract sides of physics, which I couldn't really see a future for myself in. But I happened to see an advertisement to take a graduate student down with a team that were heading to Antarctica and they needed someone with maths and physics skills. So I had the right skills. I don't really have the experience that they might have wanted, but that was my first opportunity to get to Antarctica and to 
apply those theoretical-based skills that I had to the real world, to the field of earth sciences, which I'd had almost no interaction with up until that point. And so it just, in some ways, just serendipity that you came across that ad and then got that, that wonderful opportunity. What is it now that you pursued that field that you find really enjoyable or really inspiring? You can't get past the privilege factor. So that first trip to Antarctica, just such a novel place and just so exciting to actually be able to be there and work. But then I got hooked into the science because it's been a a place where there's been relatively little science done compared to the rest of the world. So basically every time you go, you are literally making new discoveries. There's Mm -hmm. new things to be found out. I really enjoy that aspect of it. But now that I've been a few times and I've established in the field that I've chosen, it's also much more a sense of obligation to the planet and obligation to the future. You know, I have built up this skill set and this experience and I really want to be able to apply it in the best possible way for not just my future, but obviously I have children and, and I see their peers as well. So my motivation has changed over the course of my association with Antarctica. Mm, Yeah, I can imagine. And I think as the changes in the world and climate change becomes, or starts to feel, or it becomes even more urgent, and actually, as you say, the the discoveries that you can make at the poles then have deliver incredible insights that actually can potentially change the path that we're on. That must be incredibly rewarding. Yes, definitely. The work that I actually do is a very small part of the climate puzzle. But yes, understanding how it fits into that much larger context, and especially understanding not just how Antarctica is responding to climate change, but the role it actually has in determining our planet's future. My part's very small in that, but it seems like quite a significant field to be in. And I'm going to come from a place of ignorance. What part does Antarctica play in in determining the the world's future? There's actually lots of roles that Antarctica plays in terms of determining our, our current state of the climate and then, of course, its future. The big one is um, sea level rise. So as you melt the Antarctic ice sheets, you're taking ice off the land and putting it into the ocean. So that's going to raise global sea levels. So we're really in a race now to understand how that is happening and how fast it's likely to happen. But there are other aspects that people might be less familiar with. Every year there's another type of ice that forms in Antarctica. So around the continent, the ocean itself freezes to a size that effectively doubles the continent. Mm. And that's called sea ice for obvious reasons. But that growth and decay of that ice is the biggest signal we have on an annual basis in our climate system. And so it's one that we're really not familiar with in our day-to-day experience, but it plays a huge role in how the ocean distributes heat around the globe because it forms the sort of southern limb of what we call the global ocean conveyor belt. And then it also provides a habitat for the ecological system of the Southern Ocean, which actually is the most biologically productive sort of per unit area of any ocean in the world. So those are just some of the ways, but other really big picture parts that Antarctica plays in our climate system. Fascinating. And what is it like to go to Antarctica? 
I can't fully imagine it apart from what I've seen on screen, but I'd love to hear a bit more about what's it like to live and and work there for periods of the year. It might be best to reflect on the first time that I went to Antarctica, because that was, of course, when I didn't really know what to expect. So I stepped off the plane to breathe air that was colder than I'd ever breathed before, but to a beautiful blue sunny day. But all the colour was either on the people or the vehicles, but there was no natural colour. Everything was shades of white and black and blue. There's also nothing to smell except for the human activities, so the, the vehicles and things. So you develop a really acute sense of smell. On the flight back to Christchurch at the end of the season, if the wind's in the right direction, you can actually smell the grass from quite some distance out. (laughs) But it's a really quiet and serene place. One of the things I really enjoy the most is not having constant email interaction or internet distractions. You're really there for a short window of time and it's an opportunity to focus really intently on the work that you're doing. You're also typically working in in small teams, so you get to know these people really well and you're relying on each other for not just your sort of day-to-day requirements but also the health and and well-being of the, the whole team. It is a dangerous environment if you don't know what you're doing, but we're well trained for being there, but we still need to be looking out for each other and there's specific things that we're trained to look out for or make sure it doesn't happen and those sorts of things. Fascinating. And you paint a really, you know, really got that sense of kind of what it might be to look and, and feel and smell like as well. But it's interesting for me as well to hear about that human aspect too, not only about the ability to focus, but also actually that really strong reliance um, and support for your team as well. Fascinating. And I was interested, you know, sometimes people make assumptions, particularly with women, once they've had a family, and especially if they have more than one or two kids, like you do and like I do as well, that maybe that the woman wouldn't want to travel or couldn't travel anymore with their work. And yet you've made it work to, I guess, almost the kind of extreme form of travel where you're away for quite a long way away for for a reasonable amount of time. How have you made that work for you and your family? And I got involved with the science and had already travelled to Antarctica three times before I ever had children. So I was quite invested in it already and making it work became a priority, which it might not have been if I'd already had children. But then I had to take an eight-year break from going to Antarctica while I had my children. And actually that whole time I was basically devising a new experiment and seeking the funding for the experiment so that by the time I actually got back there to do it, it was something that I'd been building up to for a very long time, which is which helps feed into the motivation to make it work, right? But on a practical level, I'm very grateful for my mum who who comes and stays with my family while I'm away. That first time I went again, my youngest was only two. So it was quite traumatic for all of my three children to have mum away for six weeks with very little contact. Mm. But at least the practicalities of their day-to-day lives were managed because my mum was there to help my husband. And so they have supported me and, and made it possible to keep this career going in a way that I'm very fortunate to have and I know that others don't. 
And I think, well, they say, doesn't it takes a village to raise a family, that actually (laughs) asking for help and the support when you need it to enable also you to continue on with your career. As you say, I mentioned it was easy, but when you've got that sort of strong motivation coming through of something you want to bring to life, then you should find a way to, to make it work. And I was interested to understand, as you look back in your career, what have been some of the toughest career challenges or moments that you've faced? I have to say that I have not felt very affected by being a woman in science, and perhaps my experience is better than average. But I have never felt that has been any sort of disadvantage or there's been any that I've been held back for any reason apart from needing to try and balance a demanding career with the needs of my family. Mm. I hope that's true for men too, although I appreciate it probably isn't yet. But but in terms of the hardest parts of my job, I'm actually just at the stage of my career where I'm facing those now. I'm in a transition phase where I'm moving out of just pure research and actually having to manage larger projects which means a transition from just working with my data and getting to know it and understand it and pulling insights from it to a sort of broader perspective where you not only have to think about all of that for other people's data as well, but you have to deal with the day-to-day administration of these larger projects. So I would actually say that finding the right balance, not just between work and home, but between research and administration is actually a real challenge for me personally right now. Mm, and how are you dealing with that challenge? I'm, I'm actually trying to experiment with different ways of managing my time. I do my best work first thing in the morning, so I'm trying to carve out that time for my the stuff that inspires me, actually getting into the data and, and working with it and d- making discoveries from it and saving those sorts of more mundane tasks for later in the day when I lower level of energy for the work that I do, I suppose. Sounds a very practical way to deal with it. And I think it takes time to figure out when you're at your best and, and how you best work, and it depends what kind of work you're doing. But, yeah, it makes, makes total sense. And flipping that around the other way, you know, talked perhaps about that some of the challenges at the moment in your role. As you look back on your career to date, what are some of the proudest career moments? I'd say that that first time that I went back to Antarctica after having my kids was one of the most satisfying experiences I've had in science. As I say, I was basically planning for that experiment for the eight years prior. But then, so there was a lot of planning and I I was on top of all of the various aspects of making that happen. And I was fortunate to have a really competent and experienced team working with me And then when we arrived in Antarctica, there'd been a perfect growing season of ice over the winter before that for us to work from, which meant that we had a huge, like, spatial range that we could actually cover. And then the weather was perfect, uncommonly perfect. We had three weeks of sunshine and cloudless days to complete the work. And so it's pretty, we always make ambitious plans when we're planning for Antarctic work, but it's quite unusual to actually even complete what you had hoped to complete, just with all the the various delays and reasons that you might not be able to go out into the field. Mm. But in that particular season, we actually achieved more than we had planned and just came home with a mountain of data to start working my way through. 
So I have to say it was pretty satisfying, but it really came down to the quality and the enthusiasm and the energy as well as the competence of the team that I was with and the fact that they were just really prepared to get in behind my science and make it all work. Wonderful. And as you said, because it also was a long time in the planning, when it worked, you know, hugely satisfying for you and for the team, I'm sure. Is there anything that you might do differently in your career as you look back? I wouldn't, I'm very pleased with the path that I've taken. Mm. It's a real privilege to not only be working in Antarctica, but to have quite an in-depth understanding of our climate system and to be able to share that with people. As you said at the start, I do quite a lot of public outreach and I'm also involved in, uh, so my the work that I do allows me to go and share science with school children as well. That's probably one of the most rewarding parts of what I do. The outreach piece is obviously something completely different from being in, as you said, that serene, quiet, calm environment in Antarctica <laughs> to going into schools. I can imagine quite differently. What is it about the, that you love about that part? Again, Antarctica is such a, an engaging topic that, that people of any ages can look at the images and just want to know more. I use that as an in, really, to be delivering science and more generally to kids. I like to mix up the talks that I give that, that give them a little bit of actual hard science, but I mix it up with the videos of the seals coming up through my the holes that we've made in the ice or the pictures of the penguins out of curiosity come to check out what we're doing. So, yeah, it's just a means to an end, really, in terms of finding engagement and, and perhaps sparking some curiosity. I can see that in my kids, absolutely, would be the seals or the penguins that might get them engaged in the first place. <laughs> but actually, kids are, just as you were yourself, naturally curious and keen to understand and discover more and find out about different things. That would be probably satisfying, but in a different way from, from the research and, and field work that you do. Your job would be probably quite involving, in particular in times when you've come back from your field work, you've got a huge amount of data that you've got to go through. What do you do to find balance between your working life and, and your non-working life? Well, especially now that I have children, I'm quite um, precious about separating my work from my home time. Hmm. I put quite firm boundaries around when I'm prepared to work to make sure that my children get the time they need from me. I also have a constant stream of hobbies that I have tried out or have kept me going. As a kid and as a teenager, I did an awful lot of music. Basically, all of my spare time was taken up with music. But when I picked up the science degree, that was basically the end of my music, except that last year I started learning the cello. So it's lovely to be back in a musical community and, and picking up some of those activities. I do think there's a strong creative component to science and so to also have those other creative outlets is quite satisfying but perhaps quite necessary as well. And I think we don't necessarily think about science necessarily as that creative. Tell me a bit more about what you mean when you say there's a strong creative component to science. As I said that science, especially the work that I do, we're, we're trying new things out all the time. Oh, and I'm sure it's true of science in general. But there's a large discovery component. You're having to come up with problems to solve and then find creative ways to solve them. And 
no one's telling you how to do things. You can have conversations with your colleagues and share ideas and come up with new ways of doing things together. But there isn't a set path where you're defining the new path all the time. And just about all aspects of science require some level of creativity, I would say. Nice take on it. Yeah, I always like with these conversations. I get a lot out of them in terms of different perspectives as well. And that's definitely (laughs) thinking about that in a different way is great. You've talked even about now your career perhaps shifting from more doing the fieldwork yourself through to more managing large-scale projects. Where do you see your career heading in the future? That's an interesting one. I certainly would not like to lose the fieldwork component myself um, for some time yet. That's really a large motivation for me is, is designing experiments and being able to collect my own data. Hmm. But inevitably, more and more, there's that sort of oversight and and facilitation aspects. I, I hope to be able to maintain a balance between them because if it, you, you need to keep be able to keep some of the factors that really brought you in and motivated you in the first place, mm. I think. Mm, I would agree. And I think remembering that and making sure that still that those kind of really joyful probably elements of your job remain in there, yeah, and sometimes you have to work hard to make sure that they stay. Makes sense. And Natalie, a last question, if I may. I'd love to hear, have you got any career advice for other women? I've probably enjoyed quite a privileged ride to where I am, but I would say that just being prepared to persevere and to not let anyone tell you what is or isn't possible. I would say, though, that for young women who are still considering what their career options might be, not to shy away from the science and technology subjects just because perhaps they're not traditional women's roles, but more and more having those sorts of qualifications or experience or understanding is opening more and more doors and into careers that we don't even know exist yet or don't exist yet and are yet to be developed. But I think those are the sorts of skills that will will create more and more options in the future. Absolutely. And as you say, to not shy away from them, to consider them as, as options and as careers. And even if there aren't that many role models of other women doing that, but in some ways bring that maybe even that creative element and carving their own careers in there. But I think equally for me, that's part of why I've created the podcast series to be able to tell the stories of people like you who have carved out a fascinating, satisfying career in science and to be able to share that with other younger women and hopefully help them to find their own path within this as well. Natalie, it's been fascinating for me to hear about your career journey today and particularly to hear about how do you juggle a family with that kind of travel and field work out to Antarctica, but more for me just that wow, that wonderful curiosity that you talked about as a kid and how that's really been brought to life now in terms of the, the work that you do and the incredible experiences that you get to have done in Antarctica. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your journey with me. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a, a lovely conversation. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. 
Thanks for your support and I look forward to you joining us again soon.